I'd like for you to turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Luke to a familiar story. I said in the early service that uh, I always have a little anxiety when I bring a sermon from a familiar passage. And there's probably no passage more familiar than the 15th chapter of Luke. Fearful of what might happen. Now, you, you, you thinking, well, I've heard everything there is to hear about that parable. And you might do like this little kid came up to me one morning after the service. He said, I bet you don't know how many bricks are in that, in that petition over there. And uh, I said, no, I really haven't had time to count them, but evidently he did. So uh, I hope that uh, you don't take time to count the bricks, that something happens a little bit more important than that from this text. I, I want to say some, something this morning from this story that perhaps you've not heard before. Read with me beginning at verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I perish with hunger. I'll get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. You know, it seems to me one of the most tragic things in life would be to go through life believing that there is no God. That seems like that would be such a, a terrible and tragic thing. I really don't know anybody who does not believe there is a God. I know some folks who don't believe in God, but I don't think I know anybody who I could say was really an atheist who, who does not believe you know, that there is a God. 
Now, you may know somebody. We, we've read, you know, of Madeline Murray and, and that kind of stuff, but I think it must be one of the most tragic things to go through life not believing there is a God. That's got to be an empty life. That's got to be a hollow existence. And sometimes I wonder how the people who do not believe there is a God, how they make it over the rough places. Can you tell me that? I've often wondered when the sorrows of life just come sweeping in, washing in upon them in waves, like the sorrows sometimes do. I wonder where they get their strength. That has to be one of the most tragic things in life, to, to go through life believing there is no God. But I've come to realize that there might be something even more tragic than that. And that is to believe in the wrong kind of God. It might be more tragic to believe in the wrong kind of God than to believe in no God at all. To have an erroneous or inadequate or inaccurate idea or concept of God Himself. And I don't think that I'm exaggerating when I say that I, I, I know there are hundreds of people who who have an inadequate, erroneous, inaccurate concept of God. And I, I, I believe that it would be easier to win somebody who believes that there is no God than it would be to win somebody who believes in God but the wrong kind. I mean, the hardest people in the world to win are the, are the Muslims, and they are the most God-believing folks in the world. You see, we say we believe in God, but is it, is, it, is it God as He really is, or is it God as we conceive Him to be? And we say we worship God, but is it God as God is, or is it God as we've made Him to be? So that it is more dangerous to believe in the wrong kind of God than it is to believe in no God at all. For everything in the Christian life depends on our idea and concept of God. A few years ago, I read a statement about God that I, I've read and reread both privately and publicly. I believe it's the most profound statement concerning God I've ever seen. Listen to it. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceived God to be like. For we tend by a secret law of the soul to, to move toward our mental image of God. What he's saying is this, that everything we do in the Christian life is just a response to what we understand God to be. That's why God said, be ye holy as I am holy. Your holiness is just a response to His. My prayer, really, is just a response to what I know God to be like. 
When Jesus sat with that woman at the well, you know, she said to him, you know, you Jews believe and worship God here in Jerusalem. Well, we, we worship God in the Holy Mount. And, and, and Jesus said, well, God is spirit. And the time is coming and now is when we must worship Him in spirit and truth. What He was saying is this, God is not a geographical God. And if you're worshiping a geographical God that is confined to a building or a place, you're worshiping all wrong. And so John says in his epistle, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And if you say you know God and dwell in darkness, then you lie and do not the truth. What he's saying is this, if you really know God, you're not going to live in darkness. For everything we do in the Christian life is just our response to what we understand God to be like. Well, the question then is, what is God like? If it is more dangerous to believe in the wrong kind of God than to believe in no God at all, then I want to know what this God is like. Well, that's the, the, the question that Luke 15 tries to answer. Now, I need to tell you something this morning you may not have thought about. This parable is not the parable of the prodigal son. You say, well, who are you to change something over 2,000 years old? Well, whatever you want to call it, this is not the parable of a prodigal son. For the prodigal son is not the main character of this parable. Jesus is not saying, I want to tell you what, that sometimes some boys will go wrong. You don't have to have somebody to tell you that. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is saying, I want you people to understand what God is like. And if you go back and get the context, this is what's happening. All these Pharisees are gathering around to hear Jesus and and, and they're insulted, their dignity is insulted. They're, they're saying, what, what is this kind of man who, who, lives, who, who dwells with sinners and prostitutes? And, and they're getting sick and tired of Jesus going around telling them that he knows what God is like. And they're saying, in essence, what kind of a God is it that'll run around with ragtags like that? And so Jesus answers like this. He says, you fellows, the problem with you is you don't really know what God is like. Let me tell you what God is like. He's like a shepherd who grieves and, and seeks the lost sheep. When he finds it, he throws a party and celebrates. That's what God is like. He's like this woman when she loses a coin. She sweeps until she finds it. Then she calls her neighbors and rejoices. Let me tell you what God is like. He's like the father of this boy. And so this parable is not the parable of a boy gone wrong. It's the parable of a father's love. What is God like? Three things. He's like a father who grieves over each of us. You know the difference between Jesus and the Pharisee? The difference between Jesus and the Pharisee was this that the sinner and his sin moved the Pharisee to temper. The sinner and his sin moved Jesus to tears. And you can understand a little bit about your Christ-likeness by how you relate, how you respond to the people around you. Let me ask you this. Does the sinner and his sin move you to temper or to tears? Now God gave us a marvelous disclosure of what He was like 
He said, I want you to understand that I'm like a father who grieves over you. Of all the things that God could have said about himself, that has to be the most wonderful. Moses didn't say that. Moses didn't pray, Father. Abraham didn't pray, Father. But Jesus took us a, took a word and put it on our stammering lips and he taught us to call him Father. And he wants us to understand that he's a father who grieves over each of us. Now it's easy for us to come to this parable and feel pity for this boy. Off out there in the far country starving to death and he's so hungry he desires the pods that the hogs ate. I, I, I said in the early service, you know, that's a delicate way of saying he's ready to eat some slop. That's what we used to call it out in West Texas. And I, I heard this uh, uh, preacher one time had a sermon entitled Slop Bucket Christianity. He didn't preach that in very dignified churches, but and he, he went in graphic detail of all the stuff that's in a slop bucket. Now, I'll spare you those gory details because it's so close to lunch. But, you know, it's easy to get, you know, get some pity for this boy who's out there starving so he's willing to eat what pigs eat. Let me tell you something. Your pity is misplaced. This boy in reality is a selfish and egocentric boy. What kind of a boy would say to his dad, I just can't hardly wait till you die. I don't want I can wait. You know, it doesn't seem like you're ever going to die, Dad. It doesn't seem like I can ever get you inherited. When are you going to die so I can get my money that comes to me? What kind of a boy would say that? There's something painful about being a parent, isn't it? There's a certain deal of suffering that goes with that. I heard about a father that said to his son, said, son, I wouldn't take a million dollars for you. Boy, he was feeling good. Then his dad said, but I wouldn't give two cents for three more just like you. you know, there's, a certain, there's a certain degree of, of pain that goes with, with having kids. Now having babies, that's, you know, like Handy said last Sunday night, I mean, having babies is fun. Wait till they get to be teenagers. I'm working on an invention that makes birth control retroactive. Once they're through being babies, you know, they disappear. There's a certain degree of, 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 of anxiety and, and, and sorrow that goes with, 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 with having kids. Um, one night my phone rang when I was pastor out in West Texas, and I answered the phone, and this guy introduced himself to me on the telephone, told me his name. And he said... Uh, can I talk to somebody? He said, I can't sleep. He said, I, I need to talk to somebody. I said, well, sure, go ahead. He told me about his wife had become unfaithful to him. He said, you know what, I'm in the daytime and I'm busy, I can handle that. But he said, at night, he said, it's just about to drive me crazy. We must talk about 30 minutes or an hour. After I showed him a little compassion, a little sympathy, after I gave him an ear for the first conversation, it became a nightly event. Every night about 3 o'clock in the morning, my phone would ring. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have to ask who it was. And this guy on the other end, with this devastation, sorrow, and, and, and pain, would just cry out in the night in his sorrow. Let me tell you something, there is no pain like the pain of a rejected love. And there is no joy in life like the joy that a child brings. 
But there is no sorrow like the sorrow that a child brings. And I'm absolutely amazed when I understand that this God who created us was willing to expose himself to this hurt and this pain that goes with being a parent. He grieves over us. So I was talking one day to a man. He started telling me about his son. Told me his son had lost his job and his son had messed up big time, got into the same scene, you know, the story, the long, sordid story. I won't go into the gory details. When he finished, he's just sobbing, crying. I said, how old is your boy? He said, 35. I'm going to have to confess to you this morning. My first thought when he started telling me that story and started sobbing, my first thought when he told me his son was 35 was not sympathy for the father. My first thought was, golly, I thought when they got to be 35, you didn't have to cry over them anymore. That's my first thought. And I thought when you got them out of the house and, 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 and they had to, on their own, you know, had a job and, you know, kids of their own, I thought you could quit crying over them anymore. Doesn't work that way. He's a father who never ceases to grieve over us. That's what he's like. When you worship him, you understand that. When you pray to him, you understand that. He never stops grieving. That's a pretty heavy thought. That upon this infinite heart of God are the sobs of a world gone wrong. And some of you have heard Ron Dunn. You may have some of his tapes. He had a teenage boy, got in the drug scene, wore hair down to his waist, just quit school, one day took off to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. They didn't see him for weeks. Ron Dunn said every single night I'd go up in his room upstairs. He said outside the window of his room you could see out to this lighted park right outside our lot where we lived. He said I'd go and stand in the window there hoping that somehow some miracle would occur and my son would appear out on that park. I could see him one more time. And somehow when I read this story and I see God at the battlements of heaven, peering out over the ledge, longing with grief as a father. What a thought! He's a father who grieves over us. Secondly, he's a father, he's a father who receives us just as we are. Now he grieves when we leave. He receives us with joy when we come back. And amazing. And the startling thing about this text is that there is no evidence of rebuke. Nowhere will you find. I told you so. I love to say that. Don't you? I love it. I told you so. <laughs> I warned you. Can't say I didn't warn you. You know, I love it. I suppose all of us love to say, I told you so. Not him. Not a sign of rebuke. Now I preached this sermon this morning in the early service. 
a father broke down and wept at this point. I knew I was talking to a father in grief. He got up and left. I was preaching a, a service in a little town called Brownfield, Texas. My wife was with me. Brownfield's a little town about the size of Durant, out by Lubbock, southwest of Lubbock. The sand blows free in Brownfield. I was out in Brownfield preaching one Sunday morning, 90 mile an hour sandstorm going on. I mean, not many folks out in an auditorium about this size after the service was over. I was kind of standing around the front talking to people. I heard this woman scream. And I turned around, as everybody did, and I saw a commotion over at the side. This woman played the piano in the service. I saw this commotion over here, and there was a boy there, long hair, scraggly looking guy. And this woman was literally screaming, crying, and her husband, and they were embracing this boy in the aisle of that church. And I turned to somebody and said, what is going on? And these people were standing there and just gawking, you know. And this, this, this man said, that boy ran away from home two years ago. And his father and mother hadn't seen him for two years. And I listened as best I could. And I never heard one time, I told you so, son. Not one time did I ever hear anybody say, well, you couldn't say we didn't warn you. You're going off out there and messed up, didn't you? What I did here was a broken heart, a cry that'll make the hair stand on end of a woman, of a mother who called her son back into her arms and received him just like he was. Now this boy rehearsed a speech and the three points in this speech didn't have a poem, but had three points. Two of them were wrong, one of them was right. Listen. The one was, that was right was this. He said, I perish with hunger. I'm starving to death. And he was right. What he was saying was, I've never been as hungry in all my life. What he was saying was, I've never had such deprivation as this. What he was saying was, I have never known destitution and loneliness like this. He was right. Remember that this boy was the, was the son of a rich man. He was the son of a rich man. And he was out in the far country and he had never known anything like that. And he was right. I want you to hear me well. Listen to me carefully. I'm convinced that the lost people in this world fare better than the saved people outside the will of God. I need to say that again. In this life, I'm convinced that that lost man out there is better off than you are if you're outside the will of God. For the roughest, worst place in the world is one step outside the will of God. There is no hunger like that hunger. There is no deprivation like that. And I've had people who were saved who doubted their salvation simply because they were absolutely miserable and they thought they weren't saved. And the reason why they were miserable is because they were one decision out of the will of God. All right? said two things wrong. First thing he said, both of them are in verse 19, by the way. First thing he said wrong was, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now the problem with that is, the problem with that statement is, 
is that it implies that at one time he was worthy. See, I no longer am worthy to be called your son implies that the reason why he was a son was because he was worthy to be. You take that a little bit further. The implication of that is that, that, that he thought the reason why he was made a son was because he earned the right to be. Now what did he do to get to be that son? I mean, all he did was just show up, you know. You ever hear anybody stand up and say, well, I'm the son of so-and-so because I've earned the right to be the son of so-and-so. Let me tell you something. You're pretty ignorant. The only reason you're the son of so-and-so is because your mother and father made a choice for you to be the son of so-and-so. And sometimes we use that as a cop-out and we say, well, I, I just don't believe I should you know, teach the Sunday school class anymore because I'm no longer worthy. Or I don't believe I can witness because I'm no longer worthy. I've had people say, you know, I can't take the Lord's Supper because I'm no longer worthy to do that. Look at the way I've messed up my life. Listen, folks, when did you ever think that you ever were worthy? What made you worthy in the first place? All you did was show up. And your sonship is based upon his election, not yours. See, I want you to hear this carefully. Your sin makes you no less worthy and your righteousness makes you no more worthy. Your worthiness is based entirely upon the grace of a merciful God. Second, thing he said wrong. He said, make me a hired servant. The first indicates ignorance, the second indicates arrogance. He was in essence saying, what I have done has, will alter God's grace, God's character. See, you know, let me, let me, let me say, let me, let me suggest this. There, there are some folks who, who say, I could never believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. I just never could believe that. I just can't believe that once you're saved, you always be saved. I believe that if you sin, that, that makes you lost again. Well, that's a pretty arrogant statement. What is it that you could ever do that would alter and change God's election, His nature, His grace? Your position is a fixed position. He receives us back. Just as well. Let me finish quickly. He's a father who grieves over each of us. He's a father who receives each of us like we are. I like this. He's a father who treats us as if we never left. He's a father who treats us as if we never left. Get a ring, put it on his finger. That's a symbol of authority. Get shoes and put on his feet. That's a symbol of sonship. Get a robe and put on his back. That's a symbol of acceptance. He's treating him as if he'd never left. I love 1 John 1, 9, where it says, If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, there's a vast difference between forgiveness and cleansing. You can be forgiven and not cleansed. For example, 
you fall in the mud somewhere, you, you, your child comes in, slips accidentally and falls in a mud hole, and he comes in, and he cries, says, Mother, I'm sorry I fell in the mud. I, 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 please forgive me. You say, well, honey, I forgive you. That's okay. You have forgiveness, but you're still muddy. Kid's still dirty. Are you listening? Not only does he forgive, but the wonder of it all is that when he forgives, he cleanses. He makes it as if you had never sinned. He gives you a brand new slate to start with. He not only forgives, he cleanses, he cleans you up. Now there's some of you who are still troubled with sin already forgiven. If God has forgiven that sin, and He has, the moment you confessed and agreed with Him, at the time that happened, He treated you, started treating you as though you had never sinned. i got to say this. I love John 6, 6 chapter. It tells in there that they came with this loaves and fishes and and Philip came to Jesus and said, Jesus, these people are perishing with hunger. I mean, you've talked so long they're starving today. I'll try not to keep you that long. He said, we need to send them away. And Jesus said, no, don't send them away. Sit down. And he, you know the rest of the story? I love it. Watch. What Jesus was saying was this. You'd never have to go away to find everything you need. You never have to go anywhere than to Jesus to find everything you need. The amazing thing about this boy was that every, everything he was looking for, he found right there in the Father's house. You don't have to go anywhere other than to Jesus. Find everything you need. Greatest sermon, one of the greatest sermons ever preached is a sermon called Acres of Diamonds. It's a story about Ali Hafid. Ali Hafid was a man who owned some property in, in, North, in, in Africa. And he, he was a wealthy man, rich, had everything anybody would ever want. And one day a Buddhist monk came to his house and they got to talking and the Buddhist monk and told him that the most powerful man in all the world would be the richest man in all the world. And Ali Hoffman said, I want to be the richest man in all the world. I want to be the most powerful. He said, how do you get to be the richest man in all the world? And the monk said, well, you'll have to find a diamond mine. And so Ali Hoffman sold his property, sold his, his farm, and he took his wife and his family to relatives and he began a search for a diamond mine. Years later, broke, penniless, destitute, Ali Hoffman took his life. One day the guy who bought Ali Hoffman's farm was milking his cows and he noticed an interesting looking rock over there by the back leg of one of the cows. It wasn't, you know, it was pretty impressive so he, he took it in, you know what it was, and he put it on the mantle of his house. Huge rock, beautiful rock. One day the monk came to visit the new owner of Ali Hoffman's property and he was talking and he looked over and he said, when did Ali Hoffman find his diamond mine? The guy said, well, he did, and he died penniless and destitute. He said, well, that's a diamond. Where'd you get that, he said. He said, oh, well, I found it while I was milking the cows out there in the, you know, on, the, on my property. He said, look, show me. 
And so they went outside and they went over there where, they, where he found that diamond, that, that rock, and they began to scrape off the topsoil. And they discovered the famous Golconda mine, diamond mine. And the moral of that story doesn't even have to be mentioned. That what Ali Hafid was looking for was right there in his own house, his own backyard. Let me tell you something. Whatever you're looking for in life, you don't have to go anywhere to find it. But to the Father who grieves over you, receives you just like you are, treats you just like you've never been away. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment of decision and invitation, help us to respond to the God we understand Him to be. To the, to the Father who loves us, who has never stopped grieving since we went away. And may it happen in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place this day. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. Hear me. There's an invitation for you to come this morning and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The Father waits for you an invitation for you to come and join this church. Perhaps some of you have gotten away. You need to come back. He's waiting for you to come home. He'll take you back just as you are. Would you come while we stand to sing? We invite you.